Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the text for the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. For more information about Theopolis, including our weekly articles, media downloads, and more, check out theopolisinstitute.com. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion over these texts. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Brian Motes and Long Distance with Alistair Roberts, who is uh, in Durham, but joining us uh, from England. Uh, Good to have you with us again, Alistair. Thank you. Today we're discussing the readings for the ninth Sunday after Pentecost in the year 2018. That's June, July, rather, 22nd. The summer has passed rather rapidly. We're almost to the end of July. Uh, And the readings for this Sunday are Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 6, Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, and Mark 6, verses 30 to 44. Uh, The psalm for this ninth Sunday after Pentecost is Psalm 23, and I think that gives us a helpful clue to thinking about what's uniting a number of these readings. The Ephesians reading is a little bit outside the scope of this, but uh, certainly Jeremiah 23 and Mark 6 are both passages about shepherding. Uh, Jeremiah 23 more explicitly than Mark 6, but as we get to that, I think it'll become clear that um, the Markan passage is also about uh, the question of the good shepherd, what makes a good shepherd. Uh, Jeremiah 23, the first six verses are a an attack on the false shepherds of Jerusalem and of Judah. But that's said in the context of a larger set of warnings that begins back at, at least back at the beginning of chapter 22, which in some ways is a repetition, a variation on a theme from Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7 is the famous temple sermon of Jeremiah where he condemns the temple as a den of thieves and uh, tells the people that they're uh, committing injustices and they're seeking refuge inside the temple. In Jeremiah 22, he doesn't go to the temple, but he goes to the house of the king, and he delivers similar a similar kind of condemnation. Uh, he warns them to do justice and righteousness, deliver the one robbed by the power of the oppressor, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, the widow, do not shed innocent blood in this place. These are condemnations or uh, they're uh, prophetic denunciations of the rulers of Judah, of the kings and princes, And because of this, he goes on to talk about the breaking of the covenant and particularly Jehoiachin called Kaniah in this, at the end of Jeremiah 22. Uh, He's a a king of the Davidic line who's going to be judged and will eventually be taken off into exile. So that's the overall setting. So when he gets to the beginning of chapter 3, it's a woe to the shepherds who are scattering and devouring and destroying the sheep. But in the context, this is a part of a pro- prophecy against kings and rulers. Um, it's said uh, when uh, Christians think of shepherds, they usually think in an in ecclesial context rather than a political context. We think of pastors as shepherds. That's what the Greek term means. But in the, in the Old Testament, a shepherd is, uh, that's an in Old Testament in the ancient Near East generally, that's, the, that's an image of the king. And that's, uh, that's the uh, focus of Jeremiah's, assault here. 
against the shepherds. He's talking about the injustice that injustices that the kings and princes have perpetuated. And God's own presentation of his agency as a shepherd themselves, as a shepherd himself, that we see that within the psalm for the week, but within this passage as well, God takes responsibility for the flock. So he is the great, the chief shepherd, and then sets up under shepherds. Um, and so the shepherds themselves represent God's own care and concern and rule over his people. Yeah, that's uh, one of the indications of that is the way that the Lord speaks of Judah. Uh, he's speaking to the shepherds, and, but he talks about the shepherds as ones who are tending or supposed to be tending his flock, Yahweh's flock. Uh, verse 2, my flock. Verse 3 again, you suppose, I will gather the remnant of my flock. So it's the Lord himself is doing that, and he's the one who claims the flock as his own. may also be important to have a clearer idea of what it would mean to be a shepherd within this context. We very often have an image of the shepherd as a, a figure set in a bucolic landscape, maybe in the Lake District in, in England, <laughs> that the shepherd within the scripture is very much a man of struggle and someone who must protect the sheep against thieves, against those who will be bandit, against bandits, against wild beasts, and the examples that we see of shepherd-like figures within Scripture are often figures who are associated with the defense of this group, not just their nurture. Right, and, and um, I'm reminded of a, a, a regular compl the complaint that comes from uh, our old friend Jim Jordan, who was not able to be with us, um, but uh, he complains about the, the way that Psalm 23 is sung, the, the, the music that's usually set with it arguing that Psalm 23, being a song about a shepherd, is a war song. And there are indications of that in the song itself, the psalm itself, that the, uh, we're set at a table in the midst of our enemies, uh, passing through the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah, this is not, this is not um, a Wordsworthian uh, kind of psalm, but it's a, a psalm about the, the, the Lord as king, as shepherd, and therefore as defender. But in fact, also, it's a song of the king, of David, that the Lord as shepherd is the shepherd of the shepherd. Um, the, sh the people's shepherd is shepherded himself. I've always found that a very striking thought that we often think about our rulers as those who have mastery over their own direction and the course of events and these sorts of things, but yet God is the one who must shepherd them. And so when we pray for our leaders, we're praying that God would shepherd them. Right, and that, that's, uh, that's in, inherent in the psalm, as you say. It's also the premise of the prophecy in Jeremiah 23. Uh, the Lord is, it's his flock. The under-shepherds are overseeing the flock, but the Lord is going to hold them accountable for how they're uh, caring for the flock. Uh, part, of this, part of this prophecy has to do with a uh, promise of restoration from exile. In beginning in verse 3, there's a, exile or at least some kind of scattering. It, uh, there's a promise that the flock will be gathered together from the countries where I've driven them. So that does indicate exile. He's going to bring them into the pasture and then he'll plant them in the land and be, they'll be fruitful and multiply. So it's uh, both a, a gathering and a restoration of the flock together. They're reconstituted as a flock. And then they're planted in the land to be fruitful and multiply, which obviously has uh, creation overtones uh, 
this is a restoration of a flock that's going to uh, be fruitful and multiply as a new Adamic humanity in the land. And then part of that whole scenario, uh, the regathering of the people, they're planting in the land, part of that return from exile scenario is that the Lord himself is going to put shepherds over them who will tend them uh, and who will protect them uh, so they won't have to be terrified by any by any attackers. So part of the good news of the restoration from exile, the big picture, is not just it's not a change of location only. It's not just a deliverance from slavery to some Gentile power, but it's the restoration of true shepherds. I think that'll be important when we get particularly into the, the gospel reading. Having good leaders is part of the good news. The reference to the branch of righteousness, um, Richard Hayes suggests that that's alluded to within the words of Zechariah at the beginning of Luke's gospel, that Christ is the the shoot that comes from the house of David. Right. Uh, yeah, so and, and it's picking up on a larger set of imagery that uh, Isaiah uses, um, yeah, Zechariah uses, Jeremiah uses. Uh, you've got the, the tree of the Davidic kingdom. Uh, the roots are in Jesse, and then from Jesse grows the tree of the Davidic dynasty. It's a family tree. It's a dynastic tree. It's a, a, a royal tree picturing the kingdom, it's not just picturing the genealogy, but it's picturing the kingdom in the same way that Jesus' parable of the mustard seed pictures the kingdom. It's an, a shade and a refuge for animals. It's a place where the birds of the air find refuge. So um, in, the, in, the, in the full prophetic picture, that, that tree of David is being cut down, has been cut down. Isaiah speaks of the tree of David being cut down all the way to the roots. So it's, it's uh, the stump of Jesse. It, it, it's cut down so far that it's almost as if David... David has not existed yet. And then from the roots or from the stump, you have this new growth coming. And that's the beginning of a new tree, a new, uh, a new Davidic house, a new royal tree that's going to be uh, the kingdom of God. The promise is uh, a, it's, it's a restoration of the Davidic line that the Lord is speaking, uh, that the Lord is promising. He's going to, Jehoiachin is going to go into exile. The Lord is going to restore the Davidic line. He's bringing up. He's bringing for David a branch. Uh, that's uh, in other places. So you, you have this double promise. On the one hand, you have, "I will set shepherds over you." Then I will have a, a shepherd, a king, a Davidic king. Uh, other places where this kind of prophecy is uh, delivered to Israel, there's a promise that the Lord Himself will be the good shepherd of His people. So you have these various levels of shepherding that are promised. You have the Lord himself taking care of his flock, gathering them in this passage, shepherding them and taking them to pasture in other, in other contexts. You have uh, shepherds, plural, who are set over the people, and you have a shepherd uh, from the house of David who's set, set over the people to, do, to rule them and do justice and righteousness. So uh, again, that's, that's all part of the, the good news of the return from exile, the good news of the gospel. It's about Jesus. It's about the Lord uh, himself taking shepherding responsibility for his flock. It's also about the restoration or the uh, establishment of leaders over the flock. That's part of the, part of the promise. The, the reading is just through verse 6, but then if you continue on in Jeremiah 23, you have one of these interesting prayers, uh, pleas, laments that are scattered throughout the book of Jeremiah, particularly in the early chapters, where you have the prophet lamenting. Jeremiah is the, the weeping prophet, the prophet is lamenting 
over the people. Sometimes he's lamenting about the Lord's treatment of him. He's complaining that the Lord has mistreated him. But in in a number of these cases, the lament uh, starts out being the words of the prophet, but then seems to morph into the Lord's own lament over his people. And that, this is one of the, that's the case here in uh, verses 9 through 12. This all ends with declares the Lord, oracle of the Lord. Uh, my uh, and actually, the same thing is said in verse 11. My my NESB uh, helpfully puts quotation marks around verses 11 and 12, indicating that those are the words of the Lord and the previous words are the words of Jeremiah. But the quotation marks aren't in the original Hebrew text. I don't think they had quotation marks. So um, one way to read it, it seems at, at least uh, at least the beginning of the quotation is ambiguous. And one way to read it would be to see everything from verse 9 through the end of verse 12 is part of this lament. As for the prophets, my heart is broken within me, all my bones tremble. I am become like a drunken man, even like a man overcome with wine, because Yahweh has, and because of the holy words. Uh, the land is full of adulterers, the land mourns because of the curse, the pastures of the wilderness have dried up, their course is also evil, their might is not right. It refers to Yahweh in the third person there in verse 9, but the words um, could be some of these words about the the, the heartbrokenness and the trembling bones uh, are consistent with other things we have in Jeremiah where the Lord himself is lamenting both over his own people and over other nations. Uh, so um, that puts that puts the uh, prophecy of Jeremiah into a somewhat different context. It's not just, there's a lot of hard words in Jeremiah. There's a lot of condemnation of Judah and warning about its coming destruction. But at the same time, the prophet himself speaks these words, but laments over the condition of Judah. And the Lord himself sends the prophet to speak these words, uh, and yet the Lord himself is also lamenting over the, uh, over the condition of, of Judah. And that connection between the prophet bearing the words of God, God having put his words in the mouth of Jeremiah, but also as we see in this passage and elsewhere, I think putting his heart in the heart of Jeremiah, in some sense. The heart of God towards his people is revealed in the words of the prophet, not just um, not just some bare informational um, message, but a message that expresses God's, um, the disposition of his heart towards his, his people, his flock. Right, right. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, the um, gospel reading in Mark 6 is picking up on this theme of shepherding, although uh, I don't believe the word shepherd appears uh, explicitly. Just to give a, a, a little bit of a, a structural, uh, some structural indicators that are helpful for setting the context. Um, Mark 6, uh, which we I think we've talked about portions of Mark 6 before, but it begins with Jesus sending out the 12 on a mission that is the mission of Jesus. He's sending them out to carry on his preaching ministry, his healing ministry, his work of exorcism. Jesus comes uh, to Israel, to a people that are like sheep without a shepherd. He comes as a good shepherd, and now he's sending out these uh, the 12 as shepherds. That's interrupted in verse 13 and 14 by the story of John the Baptist's martyrdom. And that carries on to verse 28. And then verse 29, oh, sorry, verse 30, 
The apostles who have been sent out are gathered back with Jesus. Verse 30 is the beginning of our reading for this ninth Sunday after Pentecost. Beginning verse 30, the, the apostles gather together with Jesus and they report to him what they've done and taught. That's going back to the mission that they're giving at the beginning of chapter 6. So you, this is a this is a a kind of Mark and Sandwich story. The bread is kind of thin on the uh, at the end. You've got really it's like a it's like a Wendy's triple with cheese and bacon because the 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 middle part is really thick. But it is it is a it is a sandwich story because you have the mission, you have the death of John the Baptist, and then you return to the mission. They're, they're returning from the mission at the end of the story. Which puts the con- puts the, shep- the the ministry of the twelve in the context of this uh, of, of John's martyrdom, which uh, I think is imp- important for understanding the an, that's an important dimension of the mission of the twelve. They're sharing the cross with Jesus uh, from the beginning, and I think it also sets up sets us up for what's happening in the following story, which is about Jesus, one of the food miracles of Jesus, and particularly sets up a contrast between uh, Herod. The story about Herod and, and John takes place at a banquet, a food event, and then Jesus comes on the scene in verse 30, uh, and he's also hosting a banquet, um, but uh, he's uh, in the wilderness rather than the palace. Uh, he's in a desolate place. Uh, he's feeding his people rather than serving them up on platters. And you have that contrast between, it's a contrast of kings. Uh, who's the Who's the... King, who is the king of Israel? Is Herod the king? Herod is like one of the cannibal kings of Micah or like one of the kings that Jeremiah condemns. But Jesus is the good king. He's shepherding them, taking them to green grass, as the text says, and then feeding them there. And the fact that he takes compassion on them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd in verse 34, I think is significant for this reading. Many of the factors that you mention, I think, are even more pronounced within within the context of John's gospel. As he leads them out, he feeds them, they try to make him into a king. The reference to the grass and in the context of John's discussion of the, the good shepherd as the one who gives good pasture. Mm-hmm. The allusions, I think, to, to Moses, I think, are uh, quite striking mm-hmm. in this place. Mm-hmm. And the way that you mentioned earlier about the appointment of the apostles, one of the things I've wondered about this passage is the way that Christ goes out into a deserted place followed by this multitude and he feeds them miraculously with bread. But then he also gives to his disciples the task of dividing up the people. And I I think that is possi- possibly, probably an allusion to um the actions of Moses in chapter 18 of Exodus at Jethro's recommendation, dividing the people into fifties and hundreds and placing them under the leadership of the elders. And here I think the apostles are playing that particular role. Right. That, and that's consistent with the setting. Obviously it's in the wilderness. So a feeding in the wilderness brings up the whole wilderness experience of Israel their division into groups of hundreds and fifties, verse forty tells us specifically those numbers that would, that, yeah, I think that goes directly back to uh, Exodus, uh, Exodus eighteen, and the organization of Israel. So, and and then from from here, uh, there's um, that is as we move on in Mark, the disciples go across uh, the sea 
at night and Jesus appears to them walking on the sea at night. So there's a water crossing. There's another feeding in the wilderness a couple chapters later. And um, so there's a, the, the whole sequence here suggests an exodus. Herod is put in the position of a kind of a pharaoh figure uh, and uh, Jesus is uh, leading a kind of exodus out of Herod's Israel into the wilderness where he will feed his people and then bring them back into a, and and replant them as Jeremiah 23 says replant them into a a new land where they'll they'll be a, where they they will be fruitful and multiply the other detail that might be interesting on that front is the division into 50s that Israel left the land of Egypt in 50s and went into the promised land in 50s in ranks um, the, and along with that, the fact that it's only in the men that are numbered, which would seem to suggest a more military numbering. Whereas if you were numbering people to be fed, you would expect to number women and children as well. Right, right. We had a kind of informal discussion class on the Gospels over the last week or so. And uh, we were talking about the sequence of Mark and how the uh, Gospel of Mark begins with uh, a number, a series of very rapid scenes taking place in the wilderness. Um, not just scenes, but references to the wilderness, the very first lines of, the, uh, of, John, of Mark's Gospel. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. John is in the wilderness preaching Jesus is baptized and then immediately goes into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil and he's with the wild beasts. I think it, there are at least four references to the wilderness in the early, in the very first chapter of Mark. So um, we're set up, I think, with a, a in kind of a meta, meta-symbolic or metafigural way to grasp the, the, condition, the condition of Israel is that they're no longer the fruitful land, no longer the land flowing with milk and honey. They become a wilderness infested with wild beasts and with de- demon possessed, uh, with demons. Uh, Jesus' first sign miracle in Mark is the exorcism of a of a demon possessed man. But as the book goes on, you you have a few other references to the wilderness. But as the book goes on, there's more emphasis on uh, fertility, planting, and sowing. One of our one of the students who was participating in this class, Dave Shaw pointed out that you have this long series of miracles, uh, miracle, not miracles, but parables in chapter 4, which all have to do with planting. So you've moved from a, a, a largely wilderness setting, and then when Jesus describes what he's doing, he describes himself as a farmer who's trying, who's trying to turn this wilderness into, into a fertile land uh, to make it fruitful again. Uh, and you have that, that trajectory. It goes from wilderness, planting, and when you get to chapter 6, Jesus um, is in a place that's called a called a desolate place. That's a that's a wilderness. That's the same word. It's in the first in the first chapter or a variation of the same word. But this is also a, a, a setting where verse thirty nine tells us there are, there's green grass and obviously there's food. So um, as we didn't we weren't able to work this out through the whole of Mark, but it seems like there's this movement in Mark, uh, this overarching movement from the wilderness uh, into a uh, into a, a fruitful and planted land, and this this seems to be a uh, this food miracle and the other one where Jesus uh, feeds four thousand seem to be very much in the center of that movement. And this reference to the um, feeding of the five thousand is 
it's in every single one of the Gospels, one of the few episodes that um, within the ministry of Christ prior to the crucifixion is found in every single one of the Gospels. It seems to be a particularly important account. And then we also have reference to the specific number of loaves and fish and the the baskets that are taken up with fragments afterwards, which I think invites some sort of discussion. Um, <laughs> is the five are the five loaves a reference to um the five loaves given to David at by Himelech when he goes into um when he flees from Saul and then goes and takes the holy bread. Not not the five books of Moses. <laughs> <laughs> the five smooth stones. Yeah. Um, I agree entirely that they invite discussion. <laughs> uh, whether whether I'm, I, I know that I can't say anything particularly coherent. Um, uh, Austin Ferrer, in his book on Mark, has a really complicated and interesting way of dealing with this, and I think he ends up uh, speaking in terms of Jewish and Gentile numbers. Um, in chapter 8, when Jesus brings this up, he rebukes his disciples for not understanding this numerology. Eight nineteen. I broke five loaves for the 5,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? Twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets of full of broken pieces did you pick up? Seven. Then he says, do not yet understand. <laughs> uh, posing a question not only to the apostles, but also to the reader. Do you not understand? And me, the answer is not really, no. <laughs> you, do, you do have 12 total loaves that are distributed to uh, 9,000 people total. And I think that Ferrer makes something of the total number of loaves, uh, that this is a, an Israel that's being distributed. And there's two, there's two signs, there's two uh, feedings. So there's a, a feeding that yields 12, 12 baskets uh, and then a feeding which yields seven. I think he makes, again, something of... Certainly the 12 is going to uh, connote something about Israel, a, a remnant of Israel perhaps gathered up out of the uh, breaking up and distribution of Israel. Uh, and then I think he takes the seven as having some connection with uh, more maybe uh, through, through a symbolism of creation, something more generic and general about the Gentiles. Um, but for interested listeners, I refer you to uh, Austin Fair's A Study in Mark, um, and I wish I could reproduce the complications of his discussion. It's 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 very interesting, but I um, I can't reproduce it. Did you have a specific theory about it, Alistair? Um, not particularly. I think I would suspect that there is when we read two kings, the reference to um, Elisha feeding the one hundred men in chapter four. There is again the number of loaves that's given. It's it's twenty in that case. Um. And in First Samuel 21, as David comes to Nob and to Ahimelech the priest, he says later on in verse 3, or in verse 2, So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you, or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. And it seems to me that, particularly as you suggested a connection between what immediately precedes this with the death of John the Baptist and the character of Herod, that 
there may be some association between those two things that Christ leaves as he hears about what has happened to John the Baptist at the hands of Herod. And just as um, David leaves Saul at that point, and then there's the five loaves that appear um, that he gets from Ahimelech. Just to take a, a step back, and uh, not not about the numbers themselves, which I do think there's there's certainly some kind of numerical symbolism going on. Jesus expects his disciples to see something going on here, but I think uh, at a at a more abstracted level, uh, Ricky Watts in his book on Isaiah's New Exodus in the Gospel of Mark talks about um, these episodes being part of the identification of Jesus. He feeds them in the world wilderness feeds 5,000 in the wilderness he crosses the water he feeds the 4,000 again and uh, uh, Watts describes these as enacted parables that identify Jesus not just as the Davidic good shepherd uh, a human alternative to Herod but uh, identifying him as Yahweh the good shepherd uh, who feeds people in the wilderness as Yahweh did to Israel who uh, cross who has control over the waters as as Yahweh does in creation and the Exodus. Uh, so uh, at least, it, again, at a higher level of abstraction, there's that um, that aspect of it. We should uh, talk briefly at least about the Ephesians 2 passage. There's an awful lot here that uh, we could spend uh, several podcasts just talking about these verses, I think. But if, if I could just set up a couple of things quickly and then uh, feel free to add Ephesians 2 11 through 22 is the reading it follows immediately after Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 um, which are a very well Ephesians 1 and the first part of Ephesians 2 are very popular reformed texts talking about predestination uh, from before the foundation of the world God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world uh, the beginning of Ephesians 2 is talking about our death in sin and trespasses and our being raised from the dead by the power of the resurrection. God, who's rich in mercy, uh, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Uh, so our share in the, de- uh, our share in the uh, life that Jesus has by virtue of his resurrection, that, that needs to be completed and fulfilled in uh, verse, what verse 6 says. It's not just that we're beneficiaries of Jesus' death uh, and we're made alive together with him in union with him in his resurrection, but we are... Uh, seated with him in heavenly places. So the glorification, exaltation of the believer is really the the uh, climax of that sequence. So um, that's all uh, good uh, reformed soteriology. But I think it's, it's equally important to uh, see how the second half of the chapter fits into uh, Paul's understanding of what Jesus has achieved in his death and resurrection. I don't think it's entirely right to say that the first part of the chapter is individually focused, although it seems to be more so. The second part of the chapter is certainly certainly corporately and ecclesially focused and indicates that Jesus' death and resurrection is uh, has the goal of breaking down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile so as to make one new household of God one new humanity in Christ, one new Adam, uh, to form a new temple, uh, a holy house made up of holy ones, uh, to gather strangers and aliens who are outside and distant and to bring them in. Uh, all that uh, language about the formation of the church 
by the Spirit is part of Paul's understanding of the uh, the atonement, the effect of Christ's death and resurrection. Part of the part of the preaching of the gospel is not just that you can have new life in Jesus. That's absolutely true, but that humanity has new life in Jesus. Humanity has been divided in two since at least since Abraham, and now humanity is being knit together. And that would seem to bring us back to the beginning of the book to suggest that what is chosen in Christ is not just a group of individuals by themselves, but these people from all different groups, Gentiles and Jews, brought together, and it's this one new people that is finally shown in the open, this um, mystery that was hidden before the ages began. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm